I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, games may seem like a way to relieve boredom and pass the time, but do the rules and structure within a game actually have a point and serve some greater purpose in our lives? Games are the ultimate activity that you do for yourself, precisely because they're the activity where what you get out of it is useless, and you chose it for yourself. It's voluntary. It's the voluntary struggle. And that, that has to be where the meaning of life is. And later, the historical and spiritual roots of games. Probability is quite a recent concept, so now we kind of look at dice as things that produce random numbers. For most of humanity's existence, it wasn't something that produced random numbers. There was some spiritual force that was deciding the outcome of those dice. And we still have it today, you know, people will play a gambling game and roll the dice and go, oh, the dice are against me. Why we play, what's at stake, and how the gamification of life is a real thing. That's coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Whether it's a deck of cards, the roll of the dice, or avatars on a computer screen, we love games. And we have for thousands of years. When we play, we readily embrace the rules and constraints that are imposed on us. In fact, without the obstacles, there would be no point in playing. So aside from just filling spare time, do games provide us with a venue for agency and control in our lives? Can a simple game help us to better understand ourselves and the world around us? And how has technology gamified our lives, whether it's chasing likes on Twitter or hoping to get a better fitness or sleep score? Philosopher C.T. Nguyen is a professor of philosophy at the University of Utah, and his latest book is titled Games, Agency as Art. C.T. Nguyen, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, you and I share a very strange passion, or at least interest, which is in rock climbing. And yes. if there was ever a, a puzzle or a game to figure out in which the points mean really nothing, this might be it. And you uh, you tell a great story, which is, it sounds like you were at a climbing gym or doing some bouldering, and, and you had a funny interaction with a young kid. What what what, what was that all about? And why, why did that kind of inform your work? Yeah, this happens constantly. I mean... So if you engage in the kind of climbing discipline that I engage in, which is bouldering, right? You're not, most people's image of climbing is some soaring cliff, probably, you know, done without ropes or something. But the kind of climbing I do is called bouldering. And it's mostly like, you know, eight feet to 15 foot high boulders. Yeah. Uh, and normally what you're doing is you're looking for boulders where there's a really hard overhung section so like you know imagine like a cave roof that's like yeah. 45 degrees with like tiny holds and you're clawing away at this brutal thing and you get to the top and then normally what you want is you just want to be able to walk off the back right there's an easy way and a hard way i mean and we used to rock climb uh i was in graduate school in ucla and i used to rock climb with uh my friends in Santa Barbara because it was near wine tasting country and yep. that was a good split yep. day and especially there there are a lot of kids in that climbing area and Every time I'd be, every day we'd go out, at least one kid would run up the back and be like, you're doing it the wrong way. This is the right way to do it. It's easier this way. Don't you know? Like we're idiots, right? And I think that, <laughs> that, that basic experience is, I mean, trying to explain why you're doing it the hard way is basically the story of the last like eight years of my philosophical career. Right, right. And, and it speaks to these, um, these games we set up for ourselves and, and anyone who, who doesn't climb. I mean, uh, these boulders have something called bouldering problems. They have rankings. They have a, a certain point system in which, you know, you get over that uh, or through that boulder problem and you get to say, I climbed a, you know, a 9A or whatever it's going to be. And so talk about how this really did uh, take you off into an interesting field of thinking about games yeah i mean it's funny because i think i've spent i mean i've been working for about eight years in the field of the philosophy of games which barely exists as a field like huh. i think for most of it people were laughing at me in my profession for doing philosophy you're supposed to be working on like meaning or language not like games uh, and there are like two arguments in the back of my head that i'm constantly having one is with this kid and the other is with a person who a lot of the times I'll be playing board games with my friends and one person there will say something like, what's the point? This is totally pointless, right? Mm -hmm. These points are worth nothing. They'll get you nothing. Why are you just competing and trying so hard for nothingness, right? And this, this I mean, I think this puzzle really 
animates me, like trying to understand. And I love games. I've played games my entire life. I care about, I played, I grew up playing computer games. Now I mostly play board games. Uh, there's incredibly interesting indie board games and role-playing games and like an avant-garde we can talk about later. But this problem always kind of lingered in the back of my head until uh, one of my professors in graduate school, Calvin Normore, handed me the book that changed my life. And the book that changed my life is kind of a cult classic in philosophy. It's by Bernard Suits, and it's called The Grasshopper. And it's a theory of games. So uh, it's called The Grasshopper because you know the old story of like the grasshopper and the ant, and the ant works and the grasshopper does nothing and idles and plays. And then it's supposed to be a parable against the grasshopper. And this book, Bernard Suits is The Grasshopper, is a, is a systematic defense written as a fake Socratic dialogue between the grasshopper who is lying, dying in his deathbed, surrounded by his disciples, teaching them about the value of play. And he gives this definition of games. There's a long version and the short version, but the short version is to play a game is to voluntarily take on unnecessary obstacles to make possible the experience of struggling against them. So let me say that one more time, because this is like the secret to everything for yeah, me. Yeah. To play a game is to take on unnecessary obstacles voluntarily to make possible the experience of struggling to overcome them. And one way to put this is that for suits, the constraints and the obstacles are the point. So the, the way he explains it that I find very illuminating is in every game, you're trying to get to this end state. And there's always an easier way to do it. There's always a shortcut. Like if you're, if you're running a marathon, you can go off route. You can hire a taxi, right? You can steal a bicycle. <laughs> These are all easier ways to get to the finish line, but they don't count. And I think this is his key idea that if you, if you took, if you were running a marathon and you took a taxi, you'd be missing the point, which shows you that being at that specific place in time, the finish line, isn't what we care about, right? What we care about is doing it under a set of constraints. Like those constraints are a necessary part of the thing you're trying to do. And this is the response to the kid at the top of the boulder problem, right? The, the response is, look, I'm not just trying to get to the back of uh, the top of the boulder by any means necessary. There's an easier way, right? When Alex, Alex Honnold does his like wild free solo up a Yosemite cliff, you could literally have taken a shuttle bus to the top, yes. right? Those are, I mean, there, there are these great interviews where he says like, it's really weird to have gone through like a life-threatening, like intense rock climbing journey and pull over to the top of the cliff behind like the lemonade stand by the parking lot, right? Where the shuttle buses <laughs> drop off. Yeah. There is an easier way. So if you thought the point was just to do it, to do it efficiently, then you're doing it in a really stupid way. Uh, so whatever it is that games are, it has to be that essential to the thing they're doing is those constraints. The obstacles are the point. Hmm. There's so many great examples of this, and my mind, for some reason, stays in in sport. So I I talk about this sometimes on the program. I, I I'm a triathlete training for Ironman events, but I think of other weird cycling events. Take cyclocross, for example. Right, you're essentially taking a road bike, running it through mud, having to jump over obstacles, get back on the bike, keep on going. And I watch and I say, this is totally ridiculous. Right. Like you have just created a very fun, you know, activity of cycling and just run it through all these obstacles and come up with a new sport. And people say it brings them immense forms of meaning. I, I just think there's so many kind of funny but great examples out there. I'm currently recovering from extreme burnout. And the way I recover, I've discovered to run uh, from extreme burnout, of course, is another game. I've discovered fly fishing. Uh -huh. By the way, uh -huh. I tried to fly fish when I was originally a graduate student in Los Angeles. That is a terrible <laughs> place to learn. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's a Utah is a much better place to fly fish. And it's one of these things where you, you get these conflicts, like different people fly fish in different ways. And some people have this like very pure code. And the pure code is like, I will only fish dry flies. So people that don't know what this means is you're only fishing flies that float on the top of the surface mm -hmm. for a trout to take off the surface. And other people will be like, that's stupid. If you're trying to catch fish, there's much more efficient ways to catch fish. Like, you know, put weights on. And, and the response is actually, if you want to, the most efficient way to catch fish, it's probably like a net or dynamite, right? Yes. That's <laughs> uh, that the whole point is that we keep, what a game is, is sculpted action. And we keep layering on goals, changing goals and layering on constraints until that action becomes tasty. 
And the interesting thing about dry fly fishing, it's very limited. It's definitely, if your goal is to catch fish to eat, that is a dumb way to do it. Yeah. But, and you'll, you'll catch far fewer fish than other ways of doing it. But if you engage in the activity, what you spend doing is, what it's like is you're walking down a river and you're scanning the surface constantly for tiny signs of fish feeding on the surface. And so you're looking with this total intensity at the surface of moving water. Um, I find it incredibly spiritually rejuvenating. And my theory is that uh, for a laptop denizen like me, staring intensely at the surface of moving water is the spiritual opposite of like Zoom and Excel. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so like, I think what the games theory exposes you is it's a mistake to think the point of fly fishing is to catch fish because there's way easier ways to do it. It's that you layer on that goal with all these constraints until the activity becomes like tasty and delicious and beautiful or whatever. And different, and there are different versions of the activity. Like as rock, I mean, as rock climbers, we know that you can do versions of it that involve pulling on your gear, which is aid climbing. You can do versions of it that involve like putting your gear into cracks. That's trad climbing or, right. You can change the rules slightly and each slight rule change creates a slightly different version of the activity that calls forth like different actions and different decisions and different experiences of that's right struggling and so to me what's so interesting about this just kind of observing the human condition is that all this stuff is made up right i mean like this is somebody else saying here are the rules to the game which have really nothing to do with let's say the basic aspects of of human life eating surviving maybe procreating or not you know uh, serve and, and eventually dying but these are uh kind of artificial forms of meaning that have been you know brought into our lives by others and we decide to play along and therefore um are our actors in in this these new games right I mean, uh, let me say one quick thing before we get to the deep and juicy part of what you're talking about. The quick thing is I don't actually think they're that unrelated to like the things we do instrumentally to actually survive. I think actually, if you look at a lot of games, it's some skill that we have and that we actually need in the outside world that's been tweaked a little bit and altered and sculpted until it's particularly delicious or particularly satisfying or particularly easy to access. I think, for example, like I think grad school for me was like, if you get into something like philosophy, the first year or two you're in philosophy, it's just this rush of cool new ideas yeah. and it slows and slows. And then you're at my stage and you're like struggling for years before you get one more hit of a new idea. Hmm. But like chess concentrates the experience of intellectual epiphanies. Chess is a is a, is a world that's been modulated. So you keep having to do that kind of like intellectual unlocking. Um, and I think like, so there's this intense pleasure that some of us have for tasks like, so there's something my brain is really good at. Um, if you give me too much luggage and a small trunk, I can probably fit all that luggage in a trunk. <laughs> and if you give me a narrow winding staircase and a probably too large like couch, I can probably figure out how to rotate it. It sounds like a lifelong Tetris player to me. That's exactly what I was saying, right? Like, no, yeah. I, I love that. And I get to do that about once every two years <laughs> or I can play Tetris. So, I mean, I think games take actions that we typically take actions that we have in, not always, but often take actions that we have to do anyway, but they, they modify them to make them more beautiful or pleasurable to, or to heighten like the good qualities of the experience. Um, but the, the thing that you're saying is that they're inventions. I think this is really what games are. Games are artificial sculptures of activities where you take often a natural activity and you tweak it in all kinds of way, ways to make it something you want to do for its own sake. I mean, Bernard Suits had this idea. It's at the end of the grasshopper. He has this wild argument that no one takes seriously except mm -hmm. a few of us. And his wild argument is in utopia, imagine utopia where we've solved all of our problems um, what would we do with our lives? Well, we wouldn't do anything to help ourselves or like feed ourselves or fix things because it's all solved. So we would play games or would be, we would be bored out of our minds. Huh, so yeah. games must be the meaning of life. That's, wow. that's the <laughs> argument. There's actually, so underneath, so he's, he, he's very much Aristotelian. And I think underneath, you can see hint of another argument. Here's, let me reconstruct this. This is 
Aristotle by way of suits his argument. Activities, there's an action part where you're doing something and there's an end part, there's something you get out of it. But that end thing, typically we're doing that because that's useful for something else, right? So most products we make aren't valuable in, them, in and of themselves. They're instruments or tools to get something else. What must be valuable? And I think Aristotle says, the only thing that's actually valuable in and of itself is activity, like good activity, interesting activity, right? And so for Aristotle, we don't do things to make stuff, to have stuff. We do things and make stuff because certain kinds of doing are valuable. Mm -hmm. um, so the philosophical term for this is autotelic. It's activity that's valuable in itself. And I think for suits, games are the ultimate autotelic activity. They're the ultimate activity that you do for yourself because you, precisely because they're the activity where what you get out of it is useless, right? It's just yeah. random points. Yeah. And you chose it for yourself. It's voluntary. It's the voluntary struggle. And that, I think, for suits and behind him, Aristotle, that has to be where the meaning of life is. So this to me is is really fascinating. And 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 just stay with me here because we, we've been talking about a lot of interesting things. And we could use actually Alex Honnold as a fascinating example of this. Right. Does could the argument then go the activity which forces us into almost the ultimate level of focus creates, in a sense, like the greatest high or the greatest level of fulfillment. And I see this a lot in that field of sports where things actually just end up getting more dangerous and deadly along the way. But I mean, it does kind of pose this question. If, if it's about process, then maybe it's about focus and it, what element of fear works into that. I, I welcome your thoughts on that. What do you think? Okay, you're pushing me to get super philosophical. I kind of suspect that you're offering me a view of the value of games of a rock climber and athlete. Ah. And that's one kind of experience, but that's not yes. the only kind of experience, right? Yeah. So I think, I mean, when I'm climbing, I climb to be in the moment, right? I climb because, I mean, I actually climb because nothing else will shut up the voices of philosophy in my head. Sure. But, but yeah, no, the experience of rock climbing is one where you need absolute attention to like every sensory input in the moment. But there are other games that are not like that, right? There are games that are very future planning oriented. Like I think when you're in chess, you're not in the moment in a sense, you are hyper planning down the line. If you're playing a game like EVE Online, mm -hmm. you're absorbed in these multi, often year long plans involved like intricate alliances and resources. It's not an experience of being in the moment and experience, it's an, often an experience of like very temporally extended planning. Um, so yeah, I think different games stress different things. And yeah. a lot of people that like, I'm drawn to sport. Many of my favorite sports are ones that require me to be in the moment. But many of my favorite games require like elaborate, like hour long planning. Mm. I love these ideas and I could stay with the philosophy for the next two hours. But, but I want to move this to just the everyday, which is it seems that games or point systems or ascending levels is just a part of how we live. It's how we track our health or our work. Can, can you talk about it, how it's just omnipresent? The big finale of my book on games is that most of the people out there think that games are great. So gamifications must be great. Gamifications are when you take everyday activities like learning language or communicating and you game, you put points and levels on them like Twitter likes or whatever. Uh, and I think that if you understand what games are, then you'll understand and why they're good. You'll understand why gamification is typically terrible and horrifying. Mm. Uh, and the reason is because what makes games pleasurable often is that the point scoring systems are so simple and clear that they offer us a brief experience of just knowing what we're doing, right? Of knowing exactly what we are for, of not having any data or ambiguity and knowing exactly what we're trying to do and knowing exactly how well we've done. And I think that's a clarity that real life values don't normally have mm. and a lack of complexity that real life values don't normally have. And in games, it's okay because games are temporary and we're pursuing them in kind of secluded environments. But for gamification, you are getting a pleasure by simplifying your values in an everyday real activity. In Twitter, if you get motivated by Twitter points, which is so easy to do, right? You are simplifying and gamifying your values in the act of communication in the public sphere, which is not secluded and not temporary, right? And I think what we get is 
a lot of gamifications offer us this trade where they give us like the intense rush pleasure of the clarity of games. And to do it, all we have to do is accept the value system on offer, which has been pre-written by a company in Silicon Valley, right? Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. so, and I think it's, it's particularly, it's, I mean, it surrounds us for two reasons. One reason is the narrower reason. People have figured out that we really like games, and so they make things explicitly more like games. That's explicit gamification. But it's also coming on top of this huge, long trend towards more and more metrics for every aspect of our lives. Um, I've been spending, actually, the last two years not reading philosophy and just reading the history of quantification and bureaucracy. Huh. And that, I think, is, uh, as far as I can tell, is a product of increasing centralized bureaucratization and efficient bureaucratization. So there, there's a whole history about this that we can talk about. But basically, the more large-scale organizations need to integrate with each other and pass information quickly, the more likely we are to see clear quantified metrics. And I think once we get those metrics, they offer a very game-like impulse. So in my world and in academia, that's going to be something like citation rates. I suspect in your view world, it's going to be something like clicks or page yes. views, downloads, like subscribers. Sure. Yeah. The the one the thing that most blew my mind. I was on a podcast. Um, it's called the philosopher and a pastor walk into a bar, and we we're talking about this. And the pastor said, "Do you know that we're constantly getting pressure for our higher ups to increase baptism rates?" <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Anyway, so um, I can tell you a lot more about why metrics are on the rise. But I think we, what one of the things we're seeing is that large-scale institutions need simplified, clear, universally accessible, mechanically applicable measures in order to function as bureaucracies. And those actually give us the game high. When we connect into them, when we connect to like, you know, seeing your page views or subscriber numbers go up, you get the game thrill. But unlike a game, Two things, unlike a game, it's connected to real life. Unlike a game, it's connected to your real values. And so you have to change your real values. Mm. And unlike a game, you typically aren't choosing it voluntarily. You're thrown into it, right? Like yeah. I get to choose, I get to choose which sport I want to do. There are like hundreds of thousands. I can find the one that fits me. If I want to communicate in the public sphere, I don't get to choose Twitter. Twitter is there. You don't get to choose praise users or subscribers. That's the value system that's imposed on you. That's a great point. And let me throw one more idea into this and see if it lands. I, I, was, I was chatting with a friend about this and we were doing a little kind of millennial navel gazing about our generation. And there was this also this idea that if you grew up in, the, in that kind of era and conceivably it still exists now, there were constant little micro accomplishments that you were accruing along the way, right? Little trophies or ribbons yeah. or degrees or GPAs or degrees and so on and so forth. And that something seems to happen once you hit adulthood where those things begin to slow down a little bit. And that it was as if these coders or folks in Silicon Valley were able to tap back into that and find ways to keep feeling like we were winning at something. Yeah. When winning gets a little bit harder to understand once you're kind of in your career and you're in a relationship and it's hard to know if you're actually doing a good job a lot of the time or not. And so I just wonder if there was a certain ethos of that era that we found a way to manipulate, you know, in the 2020s and onwards. Yeah. Um on the one hand, I think you're kind of right. On the other, I don't want to. I don't want to think. There's a narrow view that this starts with Silicon Valley. This starts mm -hmm. so much earlier. Um, if you look at books like Theodore Porter's Trusted Numbers, or uh, this this goes back to bureaucrats in the 18th century figuring out that when they quantified um, things like cost benefits analyses, that suddenly small victories became more clear and legible and pe people became much more mo So this is Silicon Valley is the, the latest iteration yeah. of something yeah. that people have been figuring out for a really long time. But I think, mm. I think this is exactly right. So in the game design literature and in the gambling literature, electronic gambling literature in particular, there's this concept of a ludic loop. So um, I think the term is invented by Natasha Dauschel. Anyway, Natasha Dauschel, if you haven't read, you should really read her extraordinary book, um, Addiction by Design. It's a study of the Las Vegas machine gambling industry and about the people that optimize those machines for addictiveness. And also, by the way, after this book comes out, 
she starts going on interviews being like, oh my God, the engineers I was tracking are now making World of Warcraft and Facebook mm-hmm. and hyper designing the way your Twitter like shows up. Anyway, so oh. the basic idea of the ludic loop is there's, there's a specific timing of difficulty and reward that we seem to really like. And it can't be too easy or we're not satisfied, but it can't be too long, right? Or we go frustrated. Yeah. So good people that are good at this design know exactly the timing required to get us wanting more. And that timing is uh, that timing is underneath, for example, how how often you get experience points or levels up in World of Warcraft. But it's also so okay, here's something I noticed. This is very sneaky. Um so uh, I've gotten a lot more Twitter followers recently um, from being on podcasts like this. And one thing I notice is when you start out on Twitter, every follower, it counts every follower you get. So you see how many, and you get a thrill. Yeah. And at some point you, you start getting so many that it doesn't become thrilling anymore. And then your counter changes. So past 10,000 followers, your counter changes for tracking every new follower you have to tracking it in 0.1,000. That is my follower count now goes like 12.1,000, 12.2,000. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. And what happens is um, suddenly the rate by which that number goes up slows down again and it becomes, in the, it gets in the territory where it's exciting again, right? If that number goes up too fast and too easily, so they just scale it. If you, Does that make sense? It makes total so, sense, yeah. So, so I think a lot of the systems are tweaked exactly to give us the the thrill um and i mean part of this is part of this is overt engineering but part of this is just i don't know the animal responding to input and profits like mm-hmm. i don't i don't think like frito-lay company is out to like necessarily well maybe they are out to addict everyone but you can just see them as a corporation that's doing something like well if we add this thing in we make more money so we'll just do that right yeah so interesting and some of it is just so absurd i mean the, the the example i just laughed at literally yesterday is i was i was doing some training run and i'm sure anybody listening here that uses strava is going to laugh at this and strava noticed that i was running this completely random like quarter mile of road that nobody really runs that much and after about two weeks that started calling me like the grand champion or the king of the hill or like i was like the winner of this strip of road that really nobody runs but me and then they found that somebody else maybe started running it and they gave the top award to someone else They, they immediately began creating little rivalries in games within nothing that matters and yet here i am processing and thinking about it it's just like it's endless in a way. And of course, it's just another set of rules being thrown at me for me to kind of like dig into and want to run that stupid strip of road again. Right. It's like, and I think like, this is, this is a really good place to talk about where, where I think this stuff goes well and where it goes badly. I think the point systems are really valuable to us if we spend Mm -hmm. some time with them and then we reflect on whether or not that was satisfying and valuable. So I, I spent some time running um, and trying to, you know, take on the point system of like running 5Ks and it was boring for me. And then I yeah. adopted the climbing value system, climb harder problems. And that led to this fascinating, rich life. I think that if you reflect on what the point values are doing to you and the kind of life that evolves when you spend time with them, that's really good. That's using, that's using points as instruments, right? To right. get a richer, right. fuller life. If they just act on you and you just chase them, even if your life turns awful or unpleasant, that's when the points are ruling you. Um, so the Tim Rogers, uh, my favorite video game critic, had this incredible piece about The Sims Social, which is one of these free-to-play games. And he had this argument that free-to-play games were essentially evil. And the argument goes something like this. In a free-to-play game, what they, they make money uh, when you pay to skip play, right? There's something you need to do to get some badge or award. And uh, there's a long way to do it, but then there's a fast way to do it where you have to pay money and you'll get like whatever gold coins the game offers you. This means that in order to get money, free-to-play games have to addict you to the points 
and make playing so unpleasant that you're willing to pay to skip it. Uh, right. Wow. That's the opposite of striving play. That's the opposite of what games should be. And I think also like a, a similar thing where you have something unpleasant, like an unpleasant job, and someone applies a gamified system to it with addictive point structure system to get you more motivated to do the unpleasant thing. That's the opposite of rich striving play. You've hit on this, but I think how do we then navigate some of this stuff in which it feels like we're now playing even though we don't want to be playing or the data is being delivered to us even if we don't want to see it and the world is moving in that direction and it feels very hard to turn and go in the other way. I mean, it almost feels powerless in some sense. I think it's one, uh, I think it's really unlikely that we'll be able to turn back the clock on metrics, right? Mm -hmm. The world of bureaucratization, the world of, uh, one of the interesting things I find in, uh, if you believe if you believe someone like James Scott, um, who I, I'm really drawn to, the, the problems of large scale of metrics are problems both of large scale capital markets, but also large scale centralized bureaucracies. So if for the, for the socialists out there, if you believe Scott, don't just think that like, oh, I can get out of this because it's capitalism. Like, yeah. Large scale centralized communisms also have bureaucracy and this is a problem endemic to information management. Anyway, so what can, we, so I really think it's unlikely in any large scale institutionally govern world that will get away from metrics. I think we need to develop some abilities to resist their manipulative force and detach from them. And th that's really hard. Like, I don't exactly know what that is. So at the end of my book, I make a very optimistic, hopeful suggestion, which is that when you're actually playing games aesthetically, when you're playing them for your own reasons, then you actually practice moving in and out of point systems huh. and then evaluating them for whether they're worthwhile. So maybe that works that muscle. Maybe that works the reflectance muscle. That's a hope. I, I don't know if that's actually empirically true. In a lot of the, the old literature on play, you keep seeing this idea that what it is. So Maria Lagones, um, uh, a feminist epistemologist who has this wonderful paper called uh, Playfulness, World Traveling and Loving Perception. And there she says, that what it is to play is to hold norms and rules lightly, to move easily, to occupy spaces creatively and move easily between them. Mm. I think that kind of impulse, if you cultivate it, is an impulse that might be resistant to like the dominance of metrics and external evaluations. Mm. But the thing, the, thing, the thing that really gets to me is that I think that spirit is the spirit that is, can be cultivated through a certain kind of game playing, but that's the opposite spirit from the spirit of gamification. Right? Most gamifications are asking you not to reflect, to give in, to keep it, to, to get your values in line and hang on to that one way of doing things. Yeah. You know, what is such a beautiful maybe antidote to a lot of this stuff, to kind of the dark side of gamification is something like art and I think specifically music. Um, like when you think about the, the feeling of being exposed to live music or something or to play it it is merely process oriented you know with the rules of the song and the navigation of complex things but there's something in that field of art or aesthetics or creation in which i feel like we begin to see the most beautiful aspects of this stuff yeah and i mean i think i mean so i am a philosopher of art philosophy is one of the you know is one of the most crapped upon parts of the humanities. The humanities are being slowly mm. cut out of education and defunded. And by the way, the part of philosophy that is the tiniest and most ignored is aesthetics. And I think because all these things, it's like there's this hierarchy and this is the most non-productive, pure process place to be, right? Exactly. You don't get anything out. You don't get deliverables that are countable out of this, right? Mm. You just have this pure process experience. And my worry is that the, the world that cares about countable, deliverable products is going to value less and less the reflective humanities, in particular, arts, the aesthetic experience, the thing that, the, the thing that I think by its very nature kind of resists easy counting. And if we lose that, that was our resistant tendency in the per first place, right? That's, 
that is the area where we're most likely to encounter experiences that make us like wake up and remember that there's more to life than what is readily counted by institutional metrics. But if my philosophy of art classes don't lead to students getting a higher salary, it's the part of the university that's most likely to be cut. And, you know, sorry. Um, no, the, that's, the, yeah, because a Fitbit can't measure love or it can't, right? Or it can't yes. measure empathy or it can't measure the experience of beauty. Yeah. Right? The, the, the whole thing that I'm interested in right now is that games and game-like systems as instantiated in the real world require tracking something that's easy to count mechanically. And that's pleasurable in games. It's, it's fun. But in real-world gamifications, what that means is that if those metrics and points and scores and leaderboards motivate us, then we're always going to be motivated by things that are easily mechanically measurable at scale. Um, and this is, by the way, this is not, a, I'm, I'm not like anti-science and I'm not saying that like the soul is, you could never count the soul in principle, but I'm saying that <laughs> yeah. large scale institutions in order to have implement metrics need metrics to be aimed at something that anyone can easily and quickly count. And yeah. you can count steps, but you can't count the joyous feeling of quiet that like comes down on you when you like canoe quietly over a lake in the morning, right? That's not, that's not something that we can easily build technology to count. And that means that the more we're motivated by things counted by technology, the less we're gonna pay attention to that kind of stuff. And the digestible quality is so important. And you, I think, have spoken really eloquently about things like, like conspiracy theories or, or ways in which we can digest the world into very simple understandings. I was actually about to write a piece and then a game designer beat me to it that QAnon is a game. Like if you game, there's this great piece out there from a game designer that's like, if you look at QAnon from a, with a game designer's eye, it is a game and it is something that you're doing for the pleasure of investigation. Here's, no, here's something I think about a lot. I think the modern scientific life is one where, with very low intellectual autonomy. You have to trust. This is, this is funny because like when you're brought up to teach philosophy, what you're brought up to teach people is think for yourself, don't trust anyone. But of course, right. like that's, that's the direction of conspiracy theories. The nature of science is such that no one can think through everything for themselves. And I think that leaves us often feeling very powerless. A lot of the times games are pleasurable because they're places where we can actually get things done, right? A lot of life is overwhelming. We can't do anything. Either we're powerless or it's boring, but like games are made so that they have tractable amounts of pleasurable action. And in conspiracy theories, suddenly you're in charge again, right? You get to be in a space where your capacities are the right level of capacities to understand everything. Just like in a game, the capacities you're given are just the right capacities to get over the obstacles in the game. And so that pleasure of like being fully agential is one that you have, I mean, it's one that, it's an, I think it's, a, it's an artificial pleasure games can give you and it's an artificial pleasure that conspiracy theories give you by offering you a simpler explanation of the world that can fit inside a single head. It's been such a pleasure to, uh, to chat with C.T. Nguyen, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Utah and author of Games, Agency as Arts. Um, I love this conversation, T. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Still to come, writer Tristan Donovan on the 4,000-year history of games and the importance of gameplay for kids. Also, make sure to connect with us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts on today's show by going to kcrw.com or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We'll be back after this. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard why games and gameplay make it easier for us to make sense of the world around us and provide us a rare opportunity to have agency. So what do we know about the origins of games? 
Writer Tristan Donovan is the author of It's All a Game, the history of board games from Monopoly to Settlers of Catan, and says the earliest games began to emerge 5,000 years ago. Often, they were simple games of chance with a religious or spiritual component. Donovan explains that games of all sorts have the ability to bring people together and unify under a common set of rules and parameters, while also speaking to the problem-solving nature of humans. Tristan Donovan, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Games are everywhere these days. It could be video games, uh, things we play on our phones, or old-fashioned board games. But I'd love for you to give us just a short history of of games going beyond any time we can think of. I mean, ancient, ancient history. Have games always essentially been a part of human existence, something that we've always done? Oh, yeah. I mean, they go back further than we we know we i think the earliest relics we found are like five thousand years ago so you know this is before the written word um we have no clue how long we've been playing board games for um so they've been with us forever essentially as far as we know yeah can you give any examples of when you begin to see them show up probably the earliest game we know a good deal about is called senate it was um an ancient egyptian game and first appeared around 3000 BC, which is also the time where you first get the written word. So, you know, it may have existed before then. Um, But that was kind of, you know, it's a kind of simple race game, but the ancient Egyptians over the 3000 years they played it, it kind of morphed into a divination tool, if you like, a kind of fortune telling game where you'd play it and it basically represented the journey of the afterlife according to ancient Egyptian religion. And so you play this game, and at that time, people kind of imagined when you're throwing sticks or the dice, there was divine intervention in the outcome of the throw. So they would play it, and it would be like, this is what's going to happen to me in the afterlife. I'm going to, you know, I might end up in being kind of caught by in these nets and my soul being burned to flame, or I may get to merge with the sun god Ra at the end of my journey through the afterworld. Do you find that there was that uh, spiritual or mystical component, not just maybe in Egypt, but in in other early games in in different parts of the world? Yeah, so another good example is um, Moksha Patam, which was an Indian game. We don't, again, we don't know how far back it goes, but this brought, say, Hindu kind of teachings onto the board and you would learn that oh well you know if you do a bad deed you would go down this snake to the bottom if you did a good deed you'll go up this ladder towards nirvana and of course we that game evolved into what's now shoots and ladders yeah. the u.s and snakes and ladders worldwide but that started as a religious teaching game in ancient india wow it reminds me still of, of this this crossover between what is a game and what is something, I don't know, like throwing a tarot card or something that, a, you know, a priest of some sort or shaman might have used. It sounds like there was some crossover back then. Yeah, and I think it comes down to our understanding of probability. So you have to, probability is quite a recent concept. So now we kind of look at dice as things that produce random numbers. Um, for most of humanity's existence, it wasn't something that produced random numbers. There was some spiritual force or something that was deciding the outcome of those dice. And we still have it today. You know, people will play a gambling game and roll the dice and go, oh, the dice are against me, you know. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know but it, I mean, the dice don't care. But, you know, it's essentially we see some kind of divine intervention in a way in, in the dice rows. And ancient people definitely saw that yeah so i i just can't help but thinking like why what what is the deeper reason what is the the reason that humans love these creating these ways to spend time i I think there's several things board games in particular do first of all it's about bringing people together it's kind of you know there's kind of you don't have to invent conversation you don't have to kind of think about well what am i going to talk to this person about uh, you could even not speak the same language, but you can work out the rules of simpler games and play them. So you come together without much in common, and all you have in common is the board and the rules, and as long as you follow that, you can have a good time together. Um, the other thing is gambling. Um, people loved gambling on board games. You know, throughout ancient history, there, you know, people gambled on chess, they gambled on 
backgammon. They gambled on pretty much every board game. The Aztecs gambled on their board games. You know, the Indians gambled on their board games. Um, it, you know, ga- gambling is a big part of it. That's so funny. Some of our Life Examine listeners may remember an episode we did just a few months ago on addiction. And some of the earliest, you know, writings or anything we can find about what might be, you know, an essence of addiction was in gambling. I mean, going back into Hindu texts, and it was about games and gambling. So it's funny that this is this is a part of us that's been around for a long time. Yeah, and I I think we find that risk, and every individual is different, but we find that kind of risk of, you know, that we put down these stakes, and this game's really meaningful, and it's like, I've got a lot riding on this, it isn't just about, oh, we move some things around the board, you know, this this might decide whether I eat next week. Mm. Our previous guest, C.T. Nguyen, talked a little bit about how games, they take some aspects of human nature, maybe the, the hunter in us, or uh, the organizer, or something, and, and they find ways to kind of play with that human impulse. Do you, do you think that's true, that these games, they kind of evoke something in us that, that is part of our nature? I think it inspires our kind of interest in how things work. You know, it's games are systems, you know, they kind of have their rules and you can follow rules and you can do f- things within those rule sets. And I think people like kind of going, well, how does this work? And, you know, th- this kind of defines humanity in a way. It's why we're quite an inventive kind of species. We go around going, oh, well, we're going to build these tools and games tap into that because it's like, well, how does this work? Okay, those are the rules. How do I then go about winning this game? How do I use those rules to my advantage and to my opponent's disadvantage? And I think it taps into that side of us of kind of like, oh, we're going to take this kind of, if you like, clock apart figure out how it works and then try and make it work better for us. Yeah, there's something that we love about about problem solving. I mean, most games are kind of balanced between luck and strategy. You know, the, those are the two main kind of differentiators of any game. So at one end you've got chess, which is pure strategy. There's no luck involved. It's just how you play it according to rules. At the other end, you've got shoots and ladders, which has no strategy at all. Mm. It's just the throw of the dice. And obviously you have a great big kind of spectrum in the middle and i think those are the kind of different themes so you have games that are very much focused on the strategy games that are very much focused on just the experience of having fun and playing together and a whole kind of world in between and i think people were in different places along that spectrum some just want to kind of relax and play a kind of simple game that's not too demanding others want to sit there at the chessboard for three hours kind of trying to beat their opponent what about the psychological impact of playing a game? For example, uh, you know, what do we what do we learn from a game? What do children learn from game playing? Because it's such a big part of our youth. Yeah, I I think there's a few things children get out of it. I think one of the things that I mean certainly is I as a child kind of got out of it is you're you're suddenly on a level playing field. So as a kid, kind of you, you don't have too much control around about the world around you. Um, some parents may disagree, but <laughs> you kind of don't. As yeah. a you get kind of bossed around and told this is where you're going to school, this is what you're going to have for dinner, this is what's available to you. And on a board game, you're equal with the adults. You can play Monopoly, and you you know you might have a chance of beating your dad or your mum at it because you're the rules have evened out the playing field. So I think that's a big thing. I think another thing children get out of board games in particular is learning how to lose. I think you have four people playing a game, three of them are going to lose that game. And so it kind of helps teach people to go, well, I didn't win that time. That's okay. I can live, you know, I can handle it. It's not, I don't have to win every time. Yeah, that's a great point. That idea of, of having some agency, having some some freedom or, or control when, yeah, when you're a child, you don't you don't have a lot. The world is kind of dictated to you. And it also makes me think about how perhaps for those who feel powerless in the world, even as they grow older or feel that they they don't still maybe have have much control over what's happening or feeling you know, put down in some ways that they may gravitate to games in which, you know, they take on a powerful avatar. They have control over some type of a world which they may not in normal life. I suppose we see this all the time. Yeah, and I think that's very true. I think, 
you know, games are kind of controlled noble systems, especially board games. I mean, the rules are there on paper. You can look them up and see exactly how they work, which you can't necessarily do with a video game. But, you know, they're, they're controlled. You know what's going to happen, whereas the real world, so to speak, is it's messy. <laughs> you know, all kind of things happen and you don't really know how it's going to work out and we can't really understand everything that's going on around us. Whereas board games like a little kind of world, a bit like a snow globe where you can go, right, I know what's happening in there. I can, I, I feel kind of in control and have mastery over this world. Well, finally, as a, as a scholar of games, do you, do you have a favorite one or one that you find kind of endlessly interests you in, in how it works, its history, how we play it, its impact on us? What, what would you pick? Oh, wow. Um, well, I, th- I think chess, not, not so much to play, but the story of chess, I, I just find endlessly fascinating. So chess started off in India and the pieces represented um, this Indian army, you know, it had sort of elephants and things like that. Um, and then kind of, as it started moving west, um, it got to places like Persia, and they kind of changed things to suit them. So the elephant becomes um, a rook, which is a chariot um, in Persian language. And so it kind of takes on this kind of Persian influence. Then it spreads to the Middle East and the Arabic nations who kind of go, well, we're, we're Islamic. We don't like these kind of literal representations of what the playing pieces are supposed to be. So let's make them more abstract. So th- this is why your kind of chessboards on the whole don't actually look like the kind of armies they're supposed to represent. They're this kind of, you know, your pawns don't look like soldiers, but that's what they're supposed to be. And then it gets to Europe where you get the introduction of the queen piece and Europe at the time when um, the queen came into use was having a lot of kind of very powerful female rulers like um, Isabella I of Spain and Elizabeth I of England who were sort of showing well you know women can run countries just as well Um, so you end up with this kind of powerful queen piece on the board Um, so it's like this cultural sponge that is just sucking up the culture it finds itself in to keep its momentum going. I've been speaking with a journalist and author of It's All a Game, the history of board games from Monopoly to Settlers of Catan. Uh, Tristan Donovan, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Well, that's it for today. Our producer is Andrea Brody, and we would love to continue this conversation on our Facebook page. Why do you love playing games? Let us know. You can find the group by going to kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next week.